And this is the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, exploring contemporary Buddhism at the edge and at play in the great feast of knowledge. Sponsored by O'Connell Coaching. Visit imperfectbuddha.com coaching if you're interested in exploring the themes that emerge in this podcast and engaging with the challenges of a contemporary spiritual practice. In this episode of our practice series, we're talking to the meditation teacher and writer Gregory Kramer. Gregory has been teaching insight meditation since 1980. Wow, that's over 40 years of wrestling with this very rich practice. He also co-created Insight Dialogue in 1995 and has been diligently working on it and developing it ever since. He's the author of two books, one on Insight Dialogue and the other on a whole life path. He's married and has been so for 40 years and has three grown children. He's also worked in music as a composer and even taught at NYU. This conversation is very personal and goes very deep, and I think all you practitioners will get a lot out of it. Enjoy. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha podcast and another in our series on practice and the consequences in particular of long-term practice. Today we're speaking to Gregory Kramer, who's a meditation teacher and also an author with many, many years of practice under his belt. So let's dive in with our first question. For you, Gregory, what, what is practice? It sounds like a bit of a cliche, but it's true for me that life is practice. You know, I've given myself over to what that bridge really means. So uh, I don't give that as a flip answer. Uh, I can describe it a little bit more in the sense that, yes, I do formal meditation practice. Yes, I do retreats. Um, and uh, I reflect on the teachings. I read. I contemplate. But by far the most impactful uh, aspect of my path is observing uh, the body-mind uh, internally and with others and between us all the time. So that is actually practice. Uh, it's a practice even in a formal sense, uh, meaning that um, uh, while I don't have to go away to a retreat center or sit on a cushion to do it, um, it has a very definite uh, link um, to the Buddha's understanding of the human experience. So in terms of, let's say, the nuts and bolts of practice, what tradition or what lineage or, or what practice tradition do you feel like you're, you're part of? Very much the early Buddhist teachings, and my teachers were all monks. There was one nun as well, um, So, and they were all Theravada. And the last of my teachings, uh, of my formal teachers, uh, Venerable Punaji Mahatera, very much opened me to kind of something that had been emerging for me, but he gave me the confidence and the strength and the example in his own uh, 
in his own way of living and teaching to go back to the sources in the discourses and in doing so to accept that some of the later teachings, even within the early Buddhist tradition within Theravada, were um, not really reflective of what the Buddha was teaching. They were uh, sort of cultural and intellectual and practice developments in Southeast Asia, um, you know, a thousand years, 1500 years even after the Buddhist development. So um, early Buddhist teachings would be the, the grounding mm-hmm. as represented in the discourses and so on. And if we think about your, your life spent within practice, what would be two or three of the, the biggest changes you've experienced personally? Well, before practicing, I only had to face one profoundly serious event, which was a surgery, major surgery when I was 19. So I don't have really good examples of before and after, but I can tell you that uh, it was a major boon in my life that I had this background in practice and the perspective that comes from it. Uh, when I had to face first my daughter's death and then my son's near death from uh, advanced cancer, and then my own near death from two cancers. So that would be number one, is just the ability to face the really serious stuff and to come out in a way that is enhanced, not depleted. I would say another one is um, probably the contribution that practice and the Dhamma made to my wearing away uh, uh, arrogance and self-centeredness. I mean, I'm a white male, privileged. You know, I got all the stuff going for me for complete uh, uh, self-obsession and, um, you know, invisible privilege. And um, I didn't know that I was in such a condition, such a, you know, situation. Um, that's part of the deal, right, is the blindness. But waking up to that, and uh, I would have to tie in with that a steady but and profound uh, growth in compassion, care for others. Of course, I'm still imperfect, for sure. But uh, the difference between before and after <laughs> is a good one. So those two come to mind as being most prominent. Yeah, the uh, powerful experiences of, of, of loss uh, you've lived and, and come through. Um, in terms of, well, you've mentioned a couple of things, but in terms of obstacles, you know, we, we, we hear about them, we read about them, they become, in a sense, canonized within different Buddhist traditions. But, of course, we have to meet our own personal relationship with such things. Um, in terms of you as a person, what would you, what would you name as perhaps a couple of the the obstacles you've had to face within yourself, apart from self-centeredness or selfishness, which is something I think many of us are, are of course, familiar with. Yeah, well, that was certainly a huge one, and uh, another is a fear of letting go of control mm-hmm. of the mind. Meditation takes one to a place beyond the um, 
uh, control of the apparent self uh, on a moment-to-moment basis. And um, when I first encountered that, which was very early in my in my practice, um, it was uh, it was terrifying, mm. and uh, I didn't really know how to handle it. And I ended up backing off. I kept practicing, but I but a barrier remained where I, you know, uh, in, in my practice couldn't go beyond that. And I gradually came to understand that, in my case anyway, uh, part of the rigidity, if you will, or the, uh, you know, impermeability of that barrier for me had to do with um, my attitude towards practice, how I was practicing, Mm. which was with a certain sense of pushing and, um, uh, you know, a lot of diligence, a lot of energy but not so skillful. There was, um, you know, there was accomplishment, there was force. Uh, and of course, in that, uh, the self gets stronger and um, therefore losing the self becomes more problematic. Mm-hmm. So more calming down, more happiness, uh, and more patience. Uh, made a big difference and uh, sort of when those barriers were re-approached later in my life they actually didn't appear as barriers anymore hmm. yeah so that was that was a, a one one type of obstruction uh, I would say that your you know general run-of-the-mill sensory lust is is always you know one to be noticed and um you know coming to understand that that the that's not a kind of a puritanical abstract moralistic um attitude of denial of the body and senses and so on that's a a sad cliche that is not what the buddha teaches at all um but when uh in coming to see the way the mind goes out and grabs at and looks for and fills up its spaces with all these sensory, you know, delights, um, then, then you can see that it's, wow, this is, this is really just about, uh, disturbance and grasping and uh, always being off balance. And then of course, the more severe parts of it, um, you know, when when sensory desire turns into hatred because someone is bothering you or keeping you from getting what you want, those weren't so bad. It's more that level down where it just kind of keeps you from uh, really being present and contented and awake because you're always going out after the next delight. So that's that's another part of my humanity. Yeah. Those are two, I think, interesting choices. The The thought that came to my mind when you were talking about the second one was how um, such behavior, in a sense, seems to be a means for avoidance as well. It's not just grasping at something, right? But it's trying to, in a sense, avoid experiencing something. Would, would that resonate with you at all? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the <laughs> this great quote from the Buddha, uh, um, 
you know, that uh, people normally will uh, go out after sensory pleasure as a way of, uh, um, you know, uh, well, just to use the modern language, avoiding uh, mental pain and distress. And the words are something like, because they don't know anything better. <laughs> they don't know any other way, right? Mm-hmm. And it's so true that yep. uh, that's, that's what we do. And I think that relates as well to the first one you mentioned, um, control, which I, I find fascinating as a psychological mechanism. But I think it's one that's very common, and I think it's quite promoted by, you know, the almost transactional nature uh, of the way, you know, goals in meditation are often imagined or presented or even thought about. And I think that's a challenge a lot of people come up against. And it, it's, you know, it's not easy. It's not easy to let go. Um, in the way that you described before. So you, you, you mentioned having more patience. Uh, what else did you find helped you with that, especially long-term, because these things obviously take time? Um, perspective. So what you just said is a very clear and I think wise assessment of the problem. But do you really feel that? Do you really know that? Do you really know that this kind of uh, goal setting and grasping that's inherent in some ways that Buddhist teachings are presented is a problem? Are you are, are you feeling that or is it just something someone said and you didn't really get it so you keep doing it? So how do you arrive at a uh, truly heartfelt understanding or let's call it intuitive wisdom? that that kind of grasping um, is uh, uh, doomed to uh, frustration and distress. Um, And there's a lot of ways that one can come to that understanding through uh, good friendships, perspective from people who have been there, um, and uh, the... A reflection on the root teachings, the, you know, the, the reflections on the Dhamma itself, um, getting close to the sources, not so much later writers and so on. Um, and then what you see in the discourses is uh, far more mention of uh, a variety of approaches to, the, to human development not just, you know, you go to your meditation center and do this particular practice, which, oh, by the way, happens to be the best one ever in the whole world and no other practices are as good as this one. I mean, that's the attitude at most places, right? Um, uh, And uh, that the path consists not only of um, this meditation stuff, but that your path is always all the time happening. Like as we're speaking now, what are we doing? We're practicing in path terms, right view. We're examining the nature of things and whatever we can come to and then transfer that conceptual knowledge, like right now talking about obstructions of a certain kind, transfer it in our minds through our bodies into intuitive understanding. So we're practicing that right now. And anybody who's listening to this, who's actually listening, Yoni So Manasakara, wise attention. If they're listening with the intensity with which you and I are investigating, then they're practicing right view also. 
So when you see that the path is always happening, then the kinds of obstructions that come from a kind of a meditation accomplishment ladder, even if they're still there, they're just a smaller percentage of your whole conception and living of the path. So they're not as big a deal. But in fact, the obstructions like grasping an accomplishment tend to diminish and even vanish because your understanding of the way the mind works and the way freedom happens is different. It's changed. So that's a very workable thing. That's something that anybody can do. Mm-hmm. The commitment you're describing, I find interesting. I guess what comes to me is to ask this. Do you see uh, this idea of making everything your path in a way? Do you see it primarily as driven by exploration, perception, or as something that's um, driven by intention? I'm not sure I see those two as being separate. So you might have to unpack that a little for me. Okay. (laughs) Well, that's already partially an answer. (laughs) Yeah. So in the sense that you know, we, we all live our lives. You you described the fact that you um, are married and have children. So do I. And of course, that means that our lives are, are busy, whether we want them to be or not. And in a sense, there there are different approaches we can take to, to living the, the householder life. There are teachers or, or even practitioners who tend to emphasize an approach that's driven by intentionality. So this period of time, I'm going to work on increasing my patience or developing more, um, you know, heartfelt connection to people or speaking more truthfully or not reacting, but relaxing. Um, And there are others who might see, you know, the phenomena of life as the raw material that we just engage with constantly and what happens, happens. So I guess if I were to make a distinction between those two, that would be more or less it. Intentionally driven or allowed to just kind of take place on its own terms. Make sense or am I still being unclear? I think I understand now. And without a doubt, intentionally um, uh, motivated. If you're just going about thing to thing like that, then what will primarily be operating is your past conditioning. Each moment is conditioned by prior all prior moments. So as I'm speaking now, as you're listening now, the way the words are the received, the way you respond to the quality of my voice, the kinds of thoughts that are coming in the background, even as I'm speaking, as you assess what I'm saying, all of that is conditioned. And all the more so when I say something that has emotional valence to its strength and triggers something in your background that then pops up. Now, if you're just going moment by moment and you don't have any anything outside that self-fabricated system, you're just going to stay within the system. That's just a kind of the physics of the, of the mind, you might say. Uh, and um, uh, that's samsara. You know, that's just the endless loop of uh, following conditioned tendencies. Sometimes they'll be wholesome and good. Sometimes the conditioning for kindness will prevail. Great. Good for you. Good for everyone around you, especially, right? And then there's moments when your selfishness, your fear, your reactivity will prevail. 
what stands outside that system of your history? And that's what the Dhamma does. It's exactly what the purpose of the Dhamma is, is it is a reference point outside the system of your personal archive, of your history. So now you say, okay, um, you know, you say something to me about that, that, that makes me feel angry. You know, you call me a, a whatever, you know, arrogant or ugly or stupid or something like that. Now, rather than just the reaction, what I have is, oh, okay, so something has contacted the mind, <laughs> you know, it's unpleasant. I, I, uh, there's mindfulness present and I can observe these automatic responses and rather than simply spewing out, you know, that I say the same thing about you or, you know, or I go to try and harm you in some way or something like that. Now it's like, okay, pause. What's going on? I understand that you're probably speaking from some kind of protection or pain or fear or something. I, that, that knowledge comes in. It's a knowledge of compassion, of experience. And this intentional aspect that you're talking about is what's behind all of that, right? What's coming from a, that is all coming from, uh, in Buddhist terminology, wise understanding or right view, samaditi, right? So that wise understanding that, that it is possible to, for the body, mind, the heart, if you will, to be reformed in a wholesome way. And that that's constantly happening. It's a recognition of of the plasticity, uh, implicitly the plasticity of the brain. Of course, the Buddha didn't speak about it that way, but he did speak about cause and effect, which is the same basic concept, cause and effect. And so knowing cause and effect, I would know that if I am going to respond to your hatred with hatred, there ain't nothing but pain down that road for sure, right? And so the intention of waking up, the intention of kindness is behind that. And that's something that needs to be and can be developed. That's what that's where uh, good friendships come in. That's where community comes in for support. Uh, examples, you have good examples around you. That's where um, study comes in that you you gain a perspective outside of what you were just uh, you know conditioned by as you grew up which may have been lots of re- reactivity or hatred might have been some nice kindness but how much wisdom was there you know how much the understanding of the entrapped nature of the of, of the mind of the heart did you have growing up i didn't have that much and uh, you know my family was fine it was decent but is there an understanding outside that system? And that understanding, right view, gives rise to right intention, the intending of the mind in a wholesome way. So obviously I feel pretty clearly and uh, definitively about that one. Yeah, yeah, it's very clear. So in terms of, um, you know, a life lived and uh, our human imperfections and the use of uh, in intentionality, Practice, in a way, it has its it has its own life to some degree, right? It has its ups and downs. 
it's challenged by different phases of, of growth physically, uh, but also our maturation or lack thereof, and the challenges that can come up in personal relationships and uh, in parenthood. Cuckoo, as they say in Italy. Or, hey there, if you're American, and you're right, mate, if you're from the UK. Look, really, how many of these episodes have you listened to? How much have you got out of these conversations? And all that hard work we put into them. If you've gained value from the podcast, go ahead and make a donation. Give something back. Call it Dana if it makes it more palatable. You know it's the right thing to do. We get so much from the internet for free that we too often forget the hard-working men and women are giving up their time, energy and effort to make it for you. None of it is free. And that includes this podcast. Visit imperfectbuddha.com, scroll down on the right for the donation button, and do your part. Thank you. What would you say, thinking about that, are, are, are there any limits that you're currently working with in your practice life that you'd be happy to talk about? Where do you see the edge in what it is you're working on, also intentionally? There are three dynamics that come up, and they're all, of course, interrelated. One is, is, uh, is this mind ready to meet death well? Uh, another is the uh, ongoing thickness, you might say, of my uh, conditioning around, uh, you know, personality and uh, uh, ways of being with people. Sometimes it just still amazes me that, you know, after all this time, that, uh, you know, there's places of blindness, lack of skill. And then the third is... There are certain uh, aspects of meditative development that take sequestered time. And in some part because of my family, but in larger part because of my teaching and writing, I wonder about taking that time. And um, so all of those three things are poignant for me. And uh, they're all interconnected. If death weren't an issue, I'd have forever, and it wouldn't matter. So I, you know, all of the uh, kind of thickness of my karma, if you will, or, you know, unskillful tendencies, you know, just uh, wouldn't matter that uh, I'm in the, you know, the last uh, whatever quarter of my life or whatever. Um, and likewise, if death were not imminent, uh, and I don't know how imminent it is, but I do have cancer and so on, then there would not be the same calculus of time in thinking about, well, sure, of course, I'll go off and take, you know, so many months and, you know, wherever I have to go. Uh, to 
for the circumstances I would seek for meditation uh, of this type. And likewise, you know, there's always an interaction between insight and personality and what you might say the common denominator being freedom of some sort, you know, wisdom that sees through. And it goes the other way too, in the sense that the, the attachments, the heaviness, the uh, whatever, a kind of agitation or sensory greed are normal in one's life impact meditative development. So it's a two-way street. How you live impacts your meditation. How you meditate impacts how you live. I guess part of, part of what's also inherent in, in this uh, sense of uh, dilemma, you know, like uh, where are things in this life now? And is there uh, a sense of, uh, you know, all's well kind of balance and uh, contentment and so on, which are all qualities I value a great deal. But I also have within me this, um, it's not just curiosity, it's a kind of a, a zeal. I have zeal. And that zeal uh, kind of keeps me moving forward in this process of discovery. A discovery of the nature of being human, the nature of the Buddhist teachings, of the Buddha's teachings. Um, and especially I've been working on these two aspects of a whole life understanding of the path, which is the book I just finished. And it's, it's a beautiful vision and it's not a particularly uh, new one, but you know, I do feel like where I've come to and what I put down in that book is, um, has potential usefulness for a lot of people. So I have this kind of wish to share that. So my mortality comes up, you know, will I be able to do that? And will my, uh, you know, will my limits of understanding get in the way or something, just being human, you know? Um, and the other is a relational understanding of the Buddhist teachings and of, of practices. So I developed insight dialogue or relational insight meditation. And uh, as a result of that, have uh, been immersed in, in kind of this constant uh, upwelling of, uh, of what are, for me anyway, new perspectives on the human experience and on the nature of the Dhamma. That if the human experience is intrinsically relational, which it is, there's been no doubt about that, then the Dhamma must be. And what does it look like when you take that understanding and subject every single teaching in the discourses and in the tradition to that understanding or that essential nature of relationality? So all of that feels so uh, rich and beautiful and inspiring. And, um, you know, whether I am now up to with not alone. I mean, I'm with a community of people who are investigating this quite beautifully. Uh, but whatever con contribution I can make, how's the, not just the physical energy, but of course the mental energy, 
and the understanding and the development of my own heart that can share that. So those feel like uh, a different kind of edge. There's also a fourth thing that's, I guess, so uh, in my face all the time that, that I didn't bring it forward just now, and that is the edge that comes with uh, being a oh, privileged white guy. Mm-hmm. teaching Dhamma, uh, which itself is, uh, you know, it's a respected kind of position. And so waking up to the privileges beyond just the privileges, there are the respect that comes with being a Dhamma teacher, but with being white, heterosexual, able-bodied, uh, and so even though I've been engaged in a lot of, uh, you might say, education, you know, to uh, uh, come to realize my own implicit bias, to incline my work more uh, wholesomely towards anti-racism, and perhaps even the broader question of um, my responsibility, if you will, in the world at large, which has to do not just with social justice, but climate justice and so on, in a tradition where unearthing the connection between one's liberation, one's way of being as a related human being, and then one's engagement socially that whole spectrum, uh, unpacking that has been a major edge as well. Something I certainly dealt with in depth in my whole life path book, but it's also very much an internal process of maturation as well. Yeah. It's very rich, uh, very rich material you're working with. Yeah, it is. Well, I did want to talk about your work, and I, and I think this is a good point for us to do that. So you've mentioned this um, this book you're working on, but uh, let's take a step back a moment. Can you talk a, a bit to Insight Dialogue? What, what is it, and what's its particular aims and characteristics? It's an interpersonal form of Vipassana meditation. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it has its roots in the same aspirations or the same tradition, the same, many even of very similar practices as traditional uh, Vipassana meditation. Only you're in dialogue with anywhere from one to many other people. It's not just one-on-one. And uh, the foundation is that there's uh, the both the challenges and the power of human relational tendencies and sensitivities can obviously get in the way of settling down, being attentive, developing samadhi, developing strong mindfulness, because we can distract and excite each other in ways that are not so skillful. That's obvious. And that's why most retreats are held in silence with virtually no social contact other than with the teacher and the kind of the vibe 
contact of the people around you in the retreat hall. It's understandable. And when you go to meditate, the whole concept of meditation is you go into a personal kind of shell and sit there by yourself. It's a good reason for that, you know, to get create simplicity. But in insight dialogue, that very same power or sensitivity is aimed in the direction of enhancing and growing the meditative qualities as mindfulness reflects between, let's say, like you and I right now, you're awake, I'm awake. We both have this shared intention to remain present in the moment. And here we are. And that reflecting back and forth keeps us present. It's a very palpable um, and effective aspect of meditative practice where there's what I call a relational uh, uh, amplifier and relational accelerator to meditative qualities. So you have these two elements of the relational and the meditative qualities supporting and growing each other. And the mindfulness, this, the uh, calm gathered quality, the samadhi, the concentration can grow, the investigation, the joy, the tranquility can all grow. Um, but that's not where it stops because into this container of practice of two or more, into this between, if you will, what's dropped is the seed of, the, of wisdom, the Dhamma. So what we talk about is not an abstract Dhamma. We look at present moment experience through this framework of wisdom. So let's say you and I were, you know, given by, a, let's say, a teacher or we decided together we're going to contemplate impermanence, let's say. So we pause and look inward, look outward, look between us, saying, how am I noticing impermanence right now? That's not an abstract thing, right? Like, so I notice the changing of your eyes on the screen, the moving of your head. Internally, I notice some, you know, a sensing of mind states kind of bubbling and changing the sensations in the body. And I notice relationally that we're sort of engaged in this back and forth as I'm speaking and that this is changing. And all of a sudden, the wisdom aspect of this anicca, this impermanence, is brought alive by the combined power of our relationship, our relatedness, and the meditative qualities. So the wisdom is like blooming. And so those are the three elements, what I call the three bases of insight dialogue. Meditative qualities, relationship, and wisdom or dhamma. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this is taught uh, in weekly groups. It's taught uh, on day-longs and weekends. It's taught on long retreats and interleaved with silent meditation. So you go, you're moving back and forth between silent meditation and relational meditation. And over time, as these meditative qualities develop, and as the relational experience becomes more uh, refined and mature, the Dhamma just gets richer and richer and kind of moves through you into your body as a felt experience. So uh, if there's anybody who has problems with the Dhamma seeming abstract, they should try Insight Dialogue. It's quite a, and quite a uh, 
uh, embodied and um, living quality of practice. So that's insight dialogue in a in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah it's very clear. It uh, it makes me think of of a, well certain therapeutic group dynamics where you know that there's sharing and there's being together and there's feeling together. And I, it's quite a simple it's quite a simple thing in a way, but it I imagine can be very very profound, uh, especially if people are willing to really open to the process and go into it. And it's always nice to hear, I don't know if we, we want to call it innovation, but but ways of um, exploring and working with, you know, this very, very long, very, very rich tradition that is Buddhism, which goes beyond just this this image of the individual sat on a meditation cushion, sort of, you know, abstracted away from society and, you know, just exploring their own mind. I, I like the fact that this is a communal practice. And as you described it, it's very much embodied rather than just a kind of theoretical sharing of ideas or thoughts or, or worse, worse still, just opinions. <laughs> so, oh, God. Yeah. Um, I noticed that you've, you've written a book on this practice. If, if people are interested, um, I should mention that too. And there's also, um, for listeners, if you're interested in what Gregory's been sharing today, you like this idea of insight dialogue. You can go to Gregory Kramer's website and there's a series of um, audio uh, freely available on SoundCloud as well. So do check that out. Now, time always runs pretty fast on these conversations, even if we go slow. And I want to talk a little bit more about the book you mentioned before. This idea of a whole life path, I think, is interesting to many people. It's something we sometimes hear about or talk about. In a way, you know, we're at the point in the West where we have the first generation of teachers like yourself who've lived a long life with these practices here in the West and are coming to the latest stages of their life and therefore have have something to share that's very much, you know, real. This is my Sam Harris interruption, or as he once used to call it, housekeeping, which I quite like, really, housekeeping. I don't think I've ever engaged in housekeeping It sounds like the kind of thing upper-middle-class people used to do in the Victorian age. But anyway, that's besides the point, isn't it? This interruption serves to remind you of two things, and I'll keep it brief. Number one, this podcast now has a donation option on its website, imperfectbuddha.com, and I'm not going to manipulate you like Sam might. I'm just going to say a couple of straightforward things. Think about it. How much do you listen to this podcast? Really, how much have you got out of it? If the answer is very little, then skip ahead. But if you're a regular listener who benefits from these kinds of interviews I hold and these kind of creative turns that I've been experimenting with, then you might want to give something back. And here's my thoughts on it. If you don't give something back to me, give something back to someone else. Perhaps to your favourite podcast. The other one, of course. Huh? Anyway, I think it's right that you do so. I do so myself. And it needs to happen really in this day and age. I know how much time and energy I put into all this. So some of my favourite podcasts, well, they're doing exactly the same thing. And apart from those on the BBC or that belong to other professional organisations, the lesser ones, like this one, are usually put together by hard-working, inspired individuals trying to share quality content. So give something back today, folks. Give something back. Secondly, well, as you should know by now, this podcast is sponsored by O'Connell Coaching. That's my coaching business. And if you don't know the spiel, I'll quickly give it to you in one minute max. 
I offer coaching, support, mentoring and guidance to those taking, well, a different kind of approach to spirituality and Buddhism. Waking up, coming to know your mind, dealing with your emotions, etc, etc. Any of the themes we've tackled on the podcast can be faced in a one-to-one coaching dynamic. Many people find it useful. I've been refining and tailoring my approach over the last few years. I'm finding it more rewarding too, and it seems that other folks are too. Three options, coaching, Buddhist-style practice and engagement, and the shamanic stuff that, well, a lot of people seem to be rather curious about, to the point that I might actually have a podcast episode on that topic soon, but shan't give away my secrets right now. The kind of information for O'Connell Coaching is now being placed all together at the same website, imperfectbuddha.com. Get in touch if you feel the need. Um, this book, has it already been published? Where can people find it? Is it available in stores? It is. It's available on all the major online outlets. Yeah. It can probably be ordered through small independent bookstores, which is great to support them. Um, uh, and they can also order it online for you. But you can also get it at Barnes & Noble and Amazon and all those places. It's called A Whole Life Path, a... Uh, gosh, what's the subtitle? Uh, I can see here in front of me. If you like, I can I can read it because it. Yeah, yeah, why don't you read? Yeah, why don't you? It's going to lead into my last question for you, so that's perfect. It says uh, a lay Buddhist's guide to crafting a Dharma infused life. Now, right. I read that the first time. I actually read it as Dharma uh, inclusive, <laughs> which right. is you know related but not exactly the same. So you know, this is an entire book about a whole life path. So there's a lot of material in there. And you've shared uh, quite a bit with us already today. What would you say would be one of the most valuable insights that readers can get from that book? That if you give yourself up in a way to your sense of human possibility and let the zeal spring up in you, that um, the whole life quality of a, of a path is available and will work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what I spent, a, you know, time with in this book and, and then kind of really approached each of the Buddhist path factors, every one of them, saying, if you've got these eight path factors and they're supposed to cover every single moment of your life, nothing left out, what do they need to look like? Right. So all of a sudden, right speech has to include email and blogging and photography and art right? Every form of expression, right? Right view has to include all the ways we're forming views and opinions and how to get from demented (laughs) to wise and understanding and, you know, how to, so study and thought and all that is left out. Psychotherapy, how does that fit under the aspect of right effort, abandoning the wholesome and cultivating the wholesome? But is there a self-concept that's going to stick you in the middle or not? You know, um, all the breadth of samadhi practices, concentration practices, not the narrow conceptions that one often runs into. Um, the power of right action and the relational aspect of all of these things, the relational practice of right action, the relational practice of right mindfulness and the power of it 
the relational practices of wise view, which are exactly what the Buddha taught, right? So having this relational perspective was like the secret sauce that made this book possible. Because if you're not really embracing the totality of your uh, relatedness, you can't embrace the totality of your life. It's not possible. So that was key. Um, and uh, so there's these six tenets of a whole life path that I really hung things on, you know, and and they all come back to this sense of uh, possibility and immersion and really feeling that as a living both aspiration and possibility. That's great. And that's interesting. And um, I appreciate your your emphasis on the relational. We live relationally whether we want to or not. So to harness that exactly. as a means exactly. for, for conceptualizing and then engaging very, very uh, personally and deeply with, with the path, I think is very, very good. I, I also found your, um, your, your use of the word zeal interesting Gregory because it's a word that you don't hear used very often it often gets associated with with negative connotations so it's interesting to hear you you reinvigorating it with something else so when it's reinvigorated with the Dhamma then you understand that the zeal includes a zeal for loving kindness and a zeal for compassion a zeal for relinquishment for for letting go and it's kind of no zeal, no deal. I mean, <laughs> how do you live your life fully if you're not if you're not in? You know, yeah. you're going to live your life fully with one toe in the water. Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the word I would I would use is passion, uh, which of course gets a bad rap in Buddhism. Again, if you read it uh, a certain way, but uh, yeah, some kind of drive, some kind of motivation is is fundamental. And, we're all aware of that. Well, I would yeah. say it's a, a drive also has a, you know, it's a problematic. Yeah, yeah. But if we frame it as like a sense of possibility mm-hmm. that that's true for me. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not left out of this human potential for peace and freedom. And what does that mean? What does that really look like? And all of a sudden it's not like, um, you know, uh, I'm a, either Bible thumping, kind of forcing my view on you, or uh, I'm, um, you know, somehow running away from truth by hiding in a philosophical system or something, you know, all of those things just fall away when it's framed in terms of this human possibility. And that it's a possibility of uh, release from the kind of ridiculousness of the lives that most of us have built. Yeah, and with that, I think that's a, that's a nice point to finish on. And uh, let me just remind listeners, um, you've been hearing a conversation today with Gregory Kramer, meditation teacher and author. And if you'd like to find out more about his work, uh, there's lots to see and explore at gregorykramer.org. The two books we've been speaking about are a whole life path and insight dialogue. Gregory, I really appreciate you giving up your your time to speak to us today. It was good to be with you. Thanks for the questions and uh, and the reflective time. Okay, so uh, how does this sound to you, Matthew? That sounds great. I'll just lower the volume a little bit. 
Okay. And uh, you're recording on your end, right? I am, and we're good to go. So there's one other thing I have to ask you to do as well. The sound quality, for some reason, on your first question last time uh, was quite warped. So if we can add the little piece you'd like, and then I'll ask you that one question again, if you don't mind. The whole thing will take us five minutes, I'm sure. And the question I have to ask you again was the very first question I asked you last time, which is, what is practice? The first thing that comes to mind in response to that is uh, any notion of a division between practice and life, which is all too easily made uh, when you especially come to something as beautiful as um, the mind states that one uh, experiences in meditation and so on. It's like, wow, I want to do that practice. I can feel it's wholesome. I can feel it's good. And somehow, right at that same moment that you commit to something good or you're inspired by something good, paradoxically, you're cutting yourself off from the power of, let's say, mindfulness, tranquility, investigating your own mind in the midst of what you're actually doing with the rest of the time. I mean, think about it. How much percentage of your life, even if you're a committed meditator, is actually spent in formal practice? If you do a couple of long retreats a year, maybe 5% at most. So if you add up all the mind moments of skill and lack of skill, uh, you know, it's, and you really only give attention to skillfulness in formal practice, you're going to come way behind, you know? So um, the thing is that formal practice has a crucial role to play as a catalyst for insight. And insight changes everything. It changes how you are in the world all the time. So uh, that's why it's so valued and treasured but if our notion of practice is uh, confined to this narrow sense of, um, uh, you know, formal practices of sati, mindfulness, samadhi, concentration, and so on, um, you're really going to be washed down the stream of your karma all the time, you know. So that's why I say in you know, whole life path. I mean, it's the title of my book, right? I mean, if every moment conditions the next moment, uh, isn't every moment going to matter uh, in the kind of movement towards joy rather than suffering and clarity and uh, uh, discernment rather than ignorance? I mean, every moment. So how do you do that? And that's actually the, that's maybe you might say the, the central question of the whole life path book. You know, uh, how does life become path? And again, it's not the word practice. It's the word path. But within path, there's practices that then become natural. So it's kind of pa- practices on that trajectory from total ignorance practice natural <laughs> something like that Cuckoo. 
as they say in Italy. Or, hey there, if you're American, and you're right, mate, if you're from the UK. Look, really, how many of these episodes have you listened to? How much have you got out of these conversations? And all that hard work we put into them. If you've gained value from the podcast, go ahead and make a donation. Give something back. Call it Dana if it makes it more palatable. You know it's the right thing to do. We get so much from the internet for free that we too often forget the hardworking men and women are giving up their time, energy and effort to make it for you. None of it is free. And that includes this podcast. Visit imperfectbuddha.com Scroll down on the right for the donation button and do your part. Thank you.